Hi, you're listening to The Gesher Sessions, a podcast on the psychology of religious belief and experience. My name is Dr. John Catone, and I've been a psychologist for almost 20 years. But for most of my life, I've been on a quest to better understand the mysteries of existence, as well as the beliefs that people have about those mysteries. Joining me on this quest are two of my closest friends, Daphne Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Daphne and David are not just my companions on the road of truth. They're two of the smartest and deepest people I know. If you've been searching for an oasis where people have intelligent conversations about religion without sacrificing rational thinking or intellectual honesty, then you've found what you've been looking for. And we've been waiting for you. So come on and join us. And let's cross some bridges together. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Gesher Sessions podcast. Joining me once again are my co-hosts, Daphna Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Daphna, David, how are you doing today? Very good, John. I'm good. I'm good. Sun is shining bright. All right. Good. Good. Uh, so we'll have a very spirited discussion today. We've already started having a spirited discussion about the topic even before we started recording for today. So today's episode, episode three, is entitled How to Know God, which is my foundational episode and is based on a book by the same name by Deepak Chopra. And so, you know, when you throw out the name Deepak Chopra, a lot of things come to mind. Deepak Chopra was raised Hindu, but has probably come to embody the New Age movement as much as anybody else. And for that reason, a lot of people, particularly in traditional religious circles, see him with a bit of skepticism. And certainly, and David had pointed out, the diamond-studded eyeglasses and bling that he often goes around with uh, doesn't do much to uh, endear him, I guess, to people of more traditional religious traditions. So you might be wondering, well, why do I have sort of this traction or affinity to this book that he re- uh, wrote, How to Know God? And I guess before I speak about the book itself, as a psychologist, I think about things in terms of development a lot, developmental theory. And so some of the giants or pioneers in developmental psychology, we're talking about people like Piaget and Eric Erickson and Lawrence Kohlberg, who I did my dissertation on. Kohlberg focused more on moral development, whereas Piaget focused on uh, just general cognitive development. Erickson focused on, I guess, what could be called the ego development or personality development. And then, you know, later on, you have people like Otto Kernberg and objects relations theorists, Kernberg and Melanie Klein, talking about development from those perspectives. And what you see is that the human mind, beginning in infancy and progressing through childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, goes through different stages of understanding the world. That to the infant, the world starts out as this place that is sort of amorphous and undefined, and the infant can not differentiate itself 
from the rest of the world. If something is happening to the self, it's happening to the world and vice versa. And then later on, the infant comes up with this first way of organizing the world in a very black and white way in terms of good or bad, all or none, that sort of a thing. And while we may look at that as primitive, uh, that is a significant advancement in cognitive development, psychological development. If the infant or the person stays there at that level, then they may be stuck in this sort of all or none worldview that later takes on. But we hope that the infant or the child progresses beyond that to something that's a bit more nuanced and sophisticated, uh, more abstract, nuanced understanding of the self and other as having multiple parts as part of the whole. And so it's from that background that I introduced Deepak Chopra's book, How to Know God, because my religious and spiritual perspectives evolved over time, as I spoke about in episode zero, in our introductory episode, I was raised Catholic. Gradually, after seeing different contradictions within Catholicism, I didn't so much reject Catholicism as I broadened my scope to include many other belief systems and understandings, Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, and so on and so forth. And around this time, I was going through my training in psychology and as an undergrad in graduate school, and you learn about various developmental theories, and I started to see similarities between developmental theory and different ways of understanding God and religion. I hadn't yet read Deepak Chopra's book, but I was definitely adopting a more Hindu worldview that sort of sees everything in terms of Dharma lessons and growth and reincarnation. From a Hindu perspective, you can almost think about it as going through different grades in school, hopefully graduating at the point of enlightenment or liberation at one point or another. So when I eventually read Deepak Chopra's book, How to Know God, which was written around 2000, but I didn't come to read it until a few years later, I already had this framework that was being developed within me. And when I read the book, I thought that he had done a really good job of systematizing and putting words to some of the schemas that I was already starting to put together. And so I think in this book, Deepak Chopra talks about religious understanding as progressing through seven stages. And we could either think about that as stages of individual development, which he talks about. But he also kind of talks about this in terms of stages of cultural development. And admittedly, I think the weakest parts of the book are where he talks about cultural development. And, you know, I, I know Daphne, I think you have some qualms about his understanding and explanations of Judaism. Uh, obviously, Deepak Chopra being raised Hindu, speaking about Judaism or Christianity or, or Islam is, you know, sort of outside of his, I guess, expertise or, or, or scope. But I'll give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt as trying to 
find analogs and metaphors to explain his deeper points about individual development. Daphne, it's okay if you don't want to give him that uh, free pass. So what I'll say is that in the same way that you can't understand calculus until you understand algebra, and you can't understand algebra until you understand multiplication and division, and you can't understand multiplication and division until you understand addition and subtraction. According to this theory that Chopra expounds upon in How to Know God, you can't really understand God at the deepest levels, I guess what he would call level seven, until you really understand God at the preceding levels. There's a cumulative effect of what is learned at each stage in the same way that Piaget uh, or Kohlberg might talk about this in more psychology-based developmental terms. So just as, you know, I, I'm not going to go through each stage in tremendous detail because that would take too much time. But what I'll say is in stage one, Deepak Chopra talks about God and the understanding of God in very concrete terms. And in fact, God is understood through very physical terms and in terms of direct physical observation. And anything beyond that is outside of the scope of human understanding. As we progress through the stages, the understanding of God becomes increasingly nuanced and abstract. And so in stage two, stage two, still a lower level of understanding God, but similar to what I was talking about before with the infant having a very primitive system of understanding or rules-based system of separating and differentiating things, the stage two level of understanding God is, is a very rules-based law-based system. And the positive is that it brings a bit of order to an existence or a world that is otherwise chaotic. And so whether we're talking about the Ten Commandments or whether we're talking about some other set of religious rules or laws within any of the other traditions, this is sort of a major advance forward in terms of bringing predictability, order, and structure to an otherwise chaotic world. And the way God is understood at stage two is God rewards those who meticulously adhere to the rules and God punishes those who violate or disobey any of the rules. And at this stage, God is an absolutist. There is no flexible understanding. There is no getting any kind of effort for trying no reward for trying, and so on and so forth, right? But then you move on to stage three, where you have a more nuanced understanding of God and God's interpretation of rules and laws and our ability to conform to them. And there's a more abstract understanding of our inner life and the obstacles that we may face in being able to adhere to certain laws and deeper psychological limitations that we may have. And so people's understanding of God at stage three is more of a, the understanding parent where God may 
focus more on our internal decision-making rather than our external behaviors. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's kind of an oversimplification. Later on, as we get into stage four and stage five, the understanding of God becomes more abstract until we gradually get to a point at stages six and seven where, and, and this is really kind of consistent with a more Eastern, if not Hindu or yoga worldview, where one understands themselves to be connected with God in, in the Hindu parlance of thou art that or tat svayam asi thou art that one sees the self with a small s as being an aspect of self with a capital s and so this sort of connection with god where we are sort of co-creators of the universe with god but we can't just jump to that stage it would be great if we could just you know jump to that stage according to this understanding we have to progress through various levels and trials of refinement through meditation, through living the truth with a lowercase t and a capital T, and through progressing in our understanding of existence through these processes. Finally, you know, at the seventh stage of God and knowing God, God is the all, God is unborn, undying, unchanging, unmoving, unmanifest, immeasurable, invisible, intangible, infinite. God is holistic. And, and that is Deepak Chopra's seventh stage of God. But we can't really fathom that. We don't have the tools to really fathom that until we progress through the other stages. So that is essentially the, the, the schema. And I guess now that we have that out there, let me ask, the two of you, what are your thoughts on, on some of these things, the schema or anything else? In order for me to embrace any of this, I would have to see these stages not as a ladder. Maybe each stage has to exist before the next, but more as a spiral, like the uh, Kabbalistic Jewish mystical tree of life in which it's made up of different aspects of God, and the highest ends up being the Ein Sof, God without beginning and end, God always was, God always is, God always will be, Hu Hayah, Hu Hoveh, Hu Yihyeh, Betifarah for all eternity, and Tiferet is beauty, Tiferah, the beauty of that. But as a teacher of Judaism to children and families, children and their parents of all ages, you know, the way in which Deepak Chopra interprets Genesis or the, the foundational stories of the beginnings of things, and Genesis is a Greek word, and Hebrew bereshit means beginnings. Yes, God is the light, and God uses words to create. But Adam and Eve, right from the get-go, are God's partners. God gives them responsibility. Adam is to name the animals. They leave the Garden of Eden, perhaps not because they are evil and they fell, which is a Christian reading of that story, but because Eve had the gumption to be curious. And she's thinking, what, really? Not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, why don't I just touch it and see if I truly will die? And she doesn't, and she eats, and she gives it to Adam 
who makes no protest but eats. And then their eyes are open and they realize that they're naked. They have awareness. They're exposed to all the knowledge in the world. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Did God really not want them to eat from the tree? Or did God do what parents do with children and say, don't, don't do it. Don't touch the hot, the hot, um, the hot wood stove. Don't do it. Don't do it. Hoping the child will reach out and feel the heat for themselves and pull back with knowledge that I'm being told not to, but we know how two-year-olds give you that devilish look and three-year-olds and four-year-olds and go to do exactly what you've told them not to do. And I remember many folk tales that are, are around for children in which you see parents provoking children by saying don't when they want them to indeed do. So that's a very different reading of Adam and Eve and not to talk too much, but jumping ahead to Noah. Noah was a source of comfort. Noah means comfort to God. In a world in which Noah was in each Sadiq, Noah was a righteous man. He understood how to do the right thing amongst the men of his time. And then there's a wonderful rabbinic um, legend in the Talmud in which the rabbis asked, really, God just, you know, was going to up and destroy the world, told Noah he was going to do it, build the ark, and let's get going. So this legend says, in the Torah, Noah's told to build the ark from gopher wood, and we're like, what is gopher wood? What's a gopher tree? And in the legend, the rabbis teach, a gopher tree was not a tree we know of, but it was a very slow-growing tree, and Noah planted seeds and for all the years that it took for the gopher trees to grow to maturation so they could be harvested to build the ark, people would pass by as he s was working on the ark slowly over 120 years and asked Noah, what are you doing? And he, he replies, God is coming to destroy the world because everybody is so evil. And they had a choice. Are you going to hear what Noah is saying and change your behavior? But according to this legend, they mocked him, they laughed at him, they denigrated Noah. And so after 120 years, when the ark was ready, the rains came and the waters rose up from the depths of the earth, and we all know the story of Noah's ark. So I see this as addressing humans as co-creators, humans as responsible, right from the very beginning. Can children understand the stories in that way? Before the age of seven and the age of abstract thinking? Yeah, so that, that does suggest that one could read this either as a spiral or as a ladder. Mm -hmm. James Fowler, um, I don't know if, if Deepak Chopra references Fowler's Stages of Faith, but this is a rather famous um, explanation of Jumping off of Kohlberg, you know, John, who I know you're you're very familiar with. The stages of faith is the intuitive projective stage. Uh, starts out toddler preschool age, where spirituality is defined by the parents' behavior. Then on stage two, mythical, literal, and as you go on through these stages, you become much more abstract in your capacity. So your your ability to psychologically deal with the, the increasing level of abstraction and universalization becomes more available to you. I mean, much more, more capable of it. And uh, I think that 
uh, a lot of people don't make it all the way to, in Deepak Chopra's case, level stage seven, uh, in, in Fowler's case, stage six. Now, we could talk about those people that have made it to stage six in Fowler. I, I think there are a lot of people who've made it to that stage. Lots of people we know have made it to a, a very high stage of abstraction, interreligious tolerance, interfaith ideas, understanding, borrowings from one another. The interesting thing to watch is seeing people who have achieved a higher level of abstraction go backwards. Mm. And psychologically, John, what's that about? And I think you'll probably have something to say about that. Why go backward to a, I guess you could say, simpler, less abstract kind of uh, religiosity or understanding of God in the, case, in the context of Chopra's uh, book? Yeah, th these are good questions, complicated questions. Uh, when I was making my joke before about not in one lifetime, you know, I was talking about the, the whole journey from what Deepak Chopra would call level one to level seven. And so we might look at people who uh, achieved level six or so or level seven, but did they start at level one or did they start at level four in this lifetime, right? So the Hindu understanding and the Hindu worldview is one of a system of reincarnation based on the Dharma lessons that you learn and those types of things in kind of a cumulative sense building on each other. And I think the understanding is that it's really impossible in any one lifetime to make the full journey. There's too much to learn experientially. So in terms of regression in the process, in psychological terms, the way a psychologist would understand regressing to a lower stage of development, we see this very often during times of stress, during times of existential uh, fear and anxiety, in other discussions we've had about terror management theory and uh, Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, people who have cognitively reached a certain level of understanding, that doesn't necessarily mean that existentially or experientially they've sort of achieved that level, that we're all capable and susceptible of regressing behaviorally in the face of some of these stresses and certainly in the face of some sort of injury like neurological injury. You know, if someone has a frontal lobe injury, uh, they become very concrete. They often become very punitive and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think this kind of touches on metaphysical questions about the body and the, and the spirit or the body and the soul. And, you know, is it that the, the body is regressing, but the spirit is still at a certain place? So these are sort of questions that are probably above my pay grade. Well, even, even from the point of view of the here and now, so to speak, what example that pops to mind for me is uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X. Both had these, these journeys up the ladder, up the spiral, if you will. But Malcolm X, because of the affront of racism that he and his family experienced all of his life, did not go as far in the abstract, toward the abstract universalizing notion of uh, a, a quote-unquote brotherhood of man, if you will. Dr. King, I guess in some sense, integrated or built in circuit breakers so that the shock of the injustices he was facing 
um, would not pull him backwards and make and force him to regress. Uh, Malcolm X did not have those circuit breakers built in, so he became tr- very, very, and understandably, I mean, I, I have a deep respect for Malcolm X in that regard, understandably unable to, for, for most of his life, extend that kind of olive branch and make that personal sacrifice to say, I am, because of Dr. King's love ethic, based on agopic uh, love, I'm not able to make that journey. So whether one regresses or not, I guess in some sense has to do with how how complete the journey has been. I mean, you can get to the top of Everest uh, with a knapsack full of uh, water and nutrients, or you can get to the top of Everest with nothing in your knapsack, and you're exhausted, and the first wind that blows knocks you off the mountain. And I think that in the case of Malcolm X, it was much easier to knock him back to a, a, a lower, if you will, lower state. So that's just one way to, to think about regression. But anyway, go ahead. Anyone else here? Daphne, if you, if you have something, go ahead. Otherwise, uh... my mind was going to thinking about Malcolm X and thinking about Martin Luther King, Dr. King, and thinking about the way in which they dealt with things. And I think I agree with David. I can see both sides. I can see Malcolm X feeling that there was a battle to be waged. I don't know that he supported violence per se, or if some of the people who followed him and and learned from him interpreted that way. And it was just making me think, is violence ever the answer? And yet we live in such a violent world. So we're talking about God. And yet the world we live in is so pervasively violent. I think when we spoke about Rabbi David Walpe's book, Why Faith Matters, in episode one, we talked about religion, you know, the blaming of religion for violence, and yet the looking at the world before these major world religions were around and how much more violence there was because of no moral compass being taught to anybody. And it makes me think of uh, today is um, the anniversary of the not the anniversary, but the the murders in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue. I think that was five years ago. And yesterday, the court gave the murderer the death sentence. And there was an article in the Jewish paper this morning, the Jewish Daily Forward, asking several survivors on their perspective. And the one that jumps out at me is Professor Beth Berkowitz, who wrote a book about capital punishment in early rabbinic and Christian cultures. And she draws on inspiration from Coretta Scott King, who said in a 1981 speech, morality is never upheld by a legalized murder. And I know I might be going off in another direction from our discussion, John. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, thinking of listening to David, I'm repeating myself, talk about King and Malcolm X, um, made me think about this article I'd written this morning. Yeah, well, the answer... I'd read this morning. ...to this dilemma or this question, I think, is answered differently at each of the seven stages, mm-hmm. right? I think at a stage two level where things are very, you know, rule-based and law-based, 
it's very much sort of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of mentality, that will yield a very different way of responding to this horrific event than, you know, the stage six or stage seven way of understanding things as thou art that. And so if thou art that, then that means that you and I, we are all both the murderer and the murdered. We are the totality of it, right? Now that seems ludicrous to most of us, but I will say that um, it sounds ludicrous to me because I am, you know, not at that stage yet. It'll, I'm sure if I, you know, get to stage six or stage seven, it will hit me different, but that is to use a pun on the name of our show that is a bridge too far for i think many people many of our listeners and maybe even the three of us but that is i guess how stage six or stage seven thinking would would think about you know consider that question so when i think about uh, stage six thinking and thou art that it brings to mind the idea that when you look at anyone but especially when you look at a person and there's a behavior that they've done, in this case, walked into a synagogue and murdered a lot of people, but it could be, a, you know, a policeman choking a man to death on purpose and they can't breathe and everybody's videoing it and n the other policemen aren't stopping him. Two examples, right? We look at that person, the perpetrator, and we say that is an aspect of them that is unacceptable and yet, as a psychologist, John, I imagine you'd say, but there's more to this person than that aspect. And that murderous aspect, truth be told, is in all of us. Whether we act on it is a whole other story, of course, of impulse control and many other yeah. things that you know the language for um, better than I as a psychologist. But that everybody's like a, a mosaic of many different behaviors and experiences that have brought them to the place where they do what they do. And if we can isolate the murderous aspect and say, but who is this person? How did they get to that place? So where does forgiveness lie? Or if not forgiveness, at least the willingness not to have legalized murder as some kind of moral judgment and punishment, as you said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of mentality, which is such a much lower stage. And I would like to believe that for me, I could get myself to that place of stage six, mm -hmm. if it affected me personally. I don't know that I could, but I'd like to believe that I would have the ability spiritually to do it. Yeah, so beautiful, beautiful points. I think I might need a few more lifetimes. <laughs> well, I don't know, John. I think, I, think that, I think that it depends on what lens you're looking through. Now, um, I'll tell you just quickly what I do with my students when I do a segment on crime and punishment in my ethics class. I show the Dukakis debate against uh, George H.W. Bush, a segment from that debate. This is where Dukakis, many people think, lost the election. But a question was posed to him right out of the box during that debate. If you saw your wife, Kitty Dukakis, uh, raped and murdered, would you be in favor of an irrevocable death penalty? That was that was the question. And Dukakis, Governor Dukakis of Massachusetts at the time, gave this sort of clinical, pallid, liberal answer right, to the question. And all of the people in the George H.W. Bush campaign 
uh, in the back rooms were high-fiving each other. And because I knew that Dukakis had just either lost the election for himself or he had certainly wounded himself terribly by giving that bloodless answer to that question. Now, the high-fivers in the Bush campaign were not at stage seven, right? They, their thinking was, in the, in the social context, in the, the, the need to maintain a well-ordered society, which we all want, we want a well-ordered society where people don't break into your house and kill your spouse, that that, that idea of retribution appeals. And in fact, we all, in, in every country, have a criminal justice system of some sort where there is an element of retribution, of paying back to society, of balancing the scales, to use a metaphor. And without that, uh, because, because you, you have to recognize that people are not at stage se seven, there's, you've got to make some allowances for that. Now, that's the social-political view. If you shift to a metaphysics or a theological view, you can do what Daphne would want to do. In fact, I, you may very well find out that you actually are there now in this lifetime. But, but part of you will still believe that retribution is necessary. The question is how much. Now, we can get hung up on the how much part. Should it, should it be a death penalty, or should it be a life imprisonment, or 25 years, right? But there's going to be retribution of some sort. Society requires that retribution. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't write off either the three of us or anyone else uh, to suggest that we're not capable of reaching that until we have five or six more lifetimes to go through. I think we're all capable of doing it now if we are seeing things through a metaphysical or theological lens. I agree. Let me reframe this a little bit, and I think we can. Oh, perhaps... let me, John. Let me inter one more one more thing, yeah. John. I know we're not supposed to do this, but <laughs> but but I did give since since you sent this around, John, and since Daphne brought up Walpi, I circulated a an excerpt from the Wolpe, uh New York Times piece, which I read Tuesday night to my group, um, uh, dealing with a, a, a book uh, that we're, we're reading now. This is from the New York Times piece that Wolpe wrote. We must always be reminded that each person is a world, and that the caricatures we see of others on social media and in the news are just that, a small slice of the vastness within each human being. Now, anybody committed to that, if you're really committed to that, you've got to pull back from ultimate retribution kind of thinking, right? You have to, or you're a hypocrite. Or, to put it in Greek terms from Aristotle, you suffer from a weakness of the will. But either Wolpe's right or the conservative hard retributivist is right, but it can't be both. So let me give you, and, and this kind of picks up on what Wolpe said in the uh, New York Times piece. Let me give you sort of a schema now of these seven stages Chopra's seven stages that I'll, I'll just call it sort of the, the quantum schema because it, it, it sort of parallels in some way quantum physics. So if we try to think of each one of us as already embodying all seven of those stages, that we have all seven of those stages within us, right? But from a quantum perspective, you know, a... A particle can exist in an infinite number of locations, but it its probability of being in certain locations is greater 
than others. And so depending on our personal development, that our center of gravity may be more at level two yes. or level three or level four, yes. but we still have some degree of probability or some degree of attainment of all seven of those yeah levels, i think that's a good way to put it right mm -hmm. yeah not like the and, potential is there yes and so um the, the the goal then you know spiritually would be to continue to identify more frequently with the level four level five level six now if we talk about this from a cultural level all right and and i talk about different cultures and I'll say within every culture, there are people who are more stage one based as well as stage two, stage three, st you know, all the way up to stage seven. Every culture has people across the spectrum, but certain cultures may have their center of gravity locked in at a particular stage. If we talk about governance and politics, and you were talking about Dukakis before, so, you know, in 1988 and the 1988 election, right, if we think about the center of gravity of America at that time as being stage two based, and you have a politician who wants to govern the country at stage four or stage five, well, you know, that person's right. going to get soundly rejected, exactly. you know, if the center of gravity of that culture and that country is at stage two. Right? What so about I'll... now? <laughs> Might I <do> yeah. <laughs> well, have a parent in the White House, but uh -huh. Congress and Senate and the rest of the country is filled with uh, stage two and maybe stage. Mm -hmm. So stage, yeah. I don't know. Six. So if, yeah, well, so if, yeah, I mean, if you want to go there, you can go there. Um, well, your point is well taken, John. I mean, this is why you can't inf you can't you know force democracy on a country mm -hmm. that's not ready for it. You can't mm -hmm. because they're just not ready for the idea that everybody counts in terms of policy uh, questions. They believe they believe deeply that an elite should make those decisions, and and so you have to you have to cultivate a kind of soul in those countries. It's a product, It's a question of soul making. Mm -hmm. But to but to your point, John, uh, and by the way, that concept of soul making is one I use a, a lot. I used it in my corruption book. I use it again and again. I'm a big believer in in soul making and the difficulty of that and it comes from John Keats uh, letter to his sister where I guess he was counseling his sister I forgot the context of the letter and he says to her do not call the world the veil of tears call it rather the veil of soul making now I think that to get to stage seven in the Chopra book sense uh, or in the Fowler sense even uh, or even in the Kohlbergs <laughs> sense, it requires a sustained process of habituation and character formation. You've got to hear certain ideas over and over and over again and practice and fail and practice and fail. And you know what? There's only one place I know where that goes on, and that's religious institutions. Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. you, you're not going to find yeah. that. You're not going to find that in academia. You're not going to yeah. find it in day camp. You're not going to find it around the kitchen table. That holds your nose to the the effort to mm -hmm. move up the stages is only right. taking place through narratives in houses of worship. Right, I agree. There, there's a process of working on oneself, and within the community, there's sort of a shared understanding that 
I too am flawed and working towards, you know, betterment. So have patience with me, have understanding for me. And when there's this collective acknowledgement of that, you can derive strength to do difficult things from the support of the people to the left of you and to the right of you who are struggling with the same things. So if we think of ourselves, you know, I don't want to speak for you. I would like to think of myself as you know, somewhere in the middle stages, stage three, stage four, stage five. But if we think of ourselves, the three of us at, you know, one of these middle stages, but the purpose of our podcast is not just to reach the people at these stages, but to reach the pe the people at the higher stages probably, you know, don't have much interest <laughs> in the podcast, but people at other stages, stage one, stage two, how do we build a bridge to them if the purpose of this podcast is really to build a bridge? Well, I think the bridges get built in the comments on YouTube or in other places. We're not going to, we can't force the bridge to be built. We can only provide the tools for the bridge. I, I think that the, I think this, I think the seven, stage seven folks are the ones mo most likely to like the podcast because they're the ones most likely to see the need for bridge building. If you're down you know, at stage two or three, you don't see a need for bridge building. You just do your thing. So I think that the, the stage seven crowd, I, I like to think of it this way. Maybe we're using the wrong metaphor here. Maybe Chopra is, maybe Fowler is. Why don't we, maybe one way to look at this is, if I were to ask you to build a house, and I said, you're going to need a bedroom, you're going to need a kitchen, you're going to need a living room, you know, maybe a playroom. But I want to ask you to build a room for prayer and meditation only. If you accede to that request and spend the money to put that room on onto the house, at least you've done that. How often will you enter the room? Hmm, I don't know. Most of the time you'll probably spend in the kitchen, in the bedroom. But it's there. The TV room. Or the TV room. But it's there. It's there. And it's call and the room is calling to you, right? You're gonna walk past that bedroom door or that room door. And you go, yeah, I never go in there. I never go in. And maybe one day you'll go in there. Now, that's a very big step for someone. But think of the person who never builds that house with that room because they just find it's pointless. You know, what's it for, right? And I think that maybe one way to think about these things is not to to criticize ourselves for not spending a lot of time at still at level seven or maybe even saying we're not even capable of it, but saying the very fact that we're discussing this means that we've already built that room. We all may go into it uh, uh, and use it differently at different times, but I think we are there, and to your example, John, of the of quantum mechanics analogy, it's a question of probability. You know, what we want, though, we want to create a world where people access that room more often than not. And sometimes that accessing that room is not a literal space. Oh, definitely. But, uh, of course. Yeah. But that um, I want to suggest the idea of building that room, experiencing that room through action, through being of service, which all religions, you know, major religions have a way of, it's not just about myself and me and my relationship to the ultimate source of life and intelligence and all of that but my relationship to the rest of humanity so what am I doing to make the world a better place through 
action and it can be the simplest things but having that understanding which is really level stage four understanding tolerance forgiving non-judgmental inclusive accepting addresses a person's seeing beyond Mm themselves and it might just mean helping the the proverbial helping the old lady across the street Mm -hmm. helping the blind man across the street carrying a package for an elderly person not putting stumbling blocks before the blind literally or figuratively you know all of those in judaism what we call mitzvot or actions that we can have in our daily lives and awareness of the existence of these kinds of behaviors and the practice of them is part of that room yeah yeah and that that practice i think Daphne helps one to realize chopra's levels um highest Mm -hmm. levels and fowlers now the mitzvot in judaism the five pillars in Islam, the going to mass and Bible readings and stuff in Christian circles and, 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 and analogs to that everywhere else. We are not going to be able to, if, if we arrive at a higher level, maintain that altitude, to use another metaphor, <laughs> maintain that altitude if we don't habituate. You know, mm-hmm. Aristotle, which I have to read the Nicomachean Ethics again, from cover to cover, because I have to teach it at Fordham, made a point of saying that the good char- a good character is a state to be attained. It is not something that comes easy. It is not something that you're born with. In order to, to reach that state, it requires constant practice. You have to practice courage. You have to practice beneficence. You have to practice. So when you're walking down the street and you're on the journey that Chopra is suggesting we should try to be on, and you're judging people that you see, and we all do it, I know I do it, and you're making judgments about people, and you're not at the same time reminding yourself, they are you. Mm-hmm. Thou art that, right there. Well, thou yes. art that. Yeah, thou, yeah. thou art that in the universal sense, but I'm talking about just on the mundane, quotidian level mm-hmm. of human beings. They are you. They eat, they drink, they have sex, they have aspirations, they have fears, no matter what they look like no matter what their background appears to be or their condition in life, they are you, and you could trade places with them tomorrow. We have, a, we have a few minutes left. One of the things I just wanted to touch on before we wrap things up is in episode two, David, when you were talking about Houston Smith's schema and understanding and sort of his discussion of sort of secularists and, and atheists and we won't mention any names, but I think, you know, all of us have people in our lives who are secularists, atheists, who are not just sort of rejecting of religion and, and spirituality, but sort of hostile to it. And so when I think about that in the context of Deepak Chopra's schemas, when I have discussions with individuals who are hostile towards religion or rejecting of religion, and I ask them why and where their feelings come from, essentially, in each case, what comes up is their rejection of stage one religion or stage two religion. Mm -hmm. They, in the best of my knowledge and understanding in, in these discussions, is they don't have an appreciation for stage four religion or stage five religion 
And so when they're rejecting religion, it's usually one of these earlier stages, which I think even to some level, the three of us would also sort of, if not reject, at least have view in a, in a very different light or context. But still, even despite that, I'm, I'm still going to extend my hand to the person of stage one or stage two, because again, I see myself in that person. I see that person in myself. It's just a matter of probability. Mm -hmm. I might have a lower level of probability of being the stage one or stage two person, but it's still in me somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we, we all are on our way someplace is a, a line that keeps sticking in my head from a Thomas Merton video. Uh, we're all on a journey. And part of that journey for me has been to be a bit peevish and engage in my own binary thinking where I would essentially not extend my hand, but uh, I've, I've now know better. I've learned uh, that people are where they are. They're on their journey. I think I'm right. Uh, I think we're right in doing this podcast. I think that religion is important and I'm not ready to cede ground on that point, but I understand why someone wouldn't uh, think so. And I understand that they are often operating, and even at the highest levels of the academy. I mentioned Richard Wardy, who I found his understanding of religion to be almost, you know, sophomoric, very sophisticated and everything else, a philosopher's philosopher, but very unsophisticated. So, but what was Rorty rejecting? Uh, what was he responding to? You know, stage two, stage three kind of religiosity, which Daphna calls, what do you call it again, Daphna? Pediatric Judaism. Pedi pediatric pediatric, <laughs> pediatric religion. Pediatric religion. And we've all, we've all seen pediatric religion, and we all have people around us that are at that place. Now, this is not to condescend. It's to understand. And it's actually to extend love in that understanding to people who are just not ready or not able to make the leap. Uh, our job, and, we, and it'll be work that's never finished, our job is to help them move along. That's our job. If mm -hmm. you, that's your mission if you choose to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will wrap things up for now. But I want to thank you, David, and thank you, Daphna, and I especially want to thank all of you out there listening. There'll be many other bridges to cross, and we'll cross those bridges when we come to them. But the bridge we crossed today on how to know God is one that I'm glad I had all of you with me crossing that bridge. So thank you, all of you. Take care and be well. Bye. Bye. Gesher. Each episode of the Gesher Sessions podcast, including its recording and contents, is copyright of the Gesher Sessions. All rights reserved. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lisa Catone. The music used for the beginning and end of today's episode was composed by Anthony LaRoe, who owns its copyright and gave permission for its use.